Zone 3 podcast. Robert, Reggie. I am super excited. Uh, for good reason. Oh my gosh. Two reasons. One, we're on the road for the first time. <laughs> we're taking We're going on tour. Yes. Um, and our very first guest is none other than Dr. Canal. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Canal. It's my pleasure to be here. I can't believe we got you. In fact, uh, when I first had conversations with you, I told our manager, I said, hey, I got Dr. Canal booked. And she said, how in the world did you get Dr. Canal? <laughs> and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> but we did. And we're joined here by Dr. Canal. So if you would, just kind of introduce yourself. Well, I'm uh, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I've been here for decades, literally since 1977, before the UPMC system was even formed. And um, I ended up loving the city, loving the healthcare center, and ended up staying. I can see why you like it here. It's beautiful. It's our first time, my first time, right? Really green, and I'm told that it's not too bad as far as humidity today. Yeah. No, it's all right. It's so gonna it's, it's gonna be in the fifties to seventy percent humidity <laughs> the whole time. So. so it's all relative, right? <laughs> um, well, today's topic is we're talking about the canal method, um, and who better than Doctor Canal to discuss it? Uh, right. We also want to talk about an app that you got out there about MRI safety, specifically Magnet implants vision. and when it's safe to scan a patient with an implant or a device, and when it's not to. So um, I'm gonna let you take it from there, Doctor Canal. Thank you. It'll be my pleasure. One of the things that we found was that um, diagnostic radiology has been around for 100 plus years. And in fact, the very name diagnostic radiology is that it's based on radiation. And so everyone's aware of how that works and how does CT work and how does a chest x-ray work. And they recognize that you're going to take an energy source, you shine the energy source at your patient, and some of the x-ray photons go through and some don't. Some get reflected, absorbed, or deflected. The more of the x-ray photons that strike the receiver behind you, the blacker you're going to show it on the image, and the fewer that strike it, the whiter you're going to paint it on the image. So number one, everyone recognizes is a single energy source that you're probing the tissue with. The more that get absorbed, it changes its color, so to speak, and makes it from black to white. And that's the contrast on the image. We also know that there are some risks associated with this energy source. The predominant one, of course, is carcinogenesis. And so everyone also recognizes if I'm going to take a chest x-ray and I'm irradiating your chest, then that which was irradiated has the potential to be exposed to carcinogenesis. I'm not worried about your foot. I'm worried about your chest if I did a chest x-ray. In fact, it's so clearly understood. It's so mechanical that we don't even think about it. To the point where there are people that would say like, well, you know, if she's expecting, she's pregnant, can I scan her? Well, scan the head. Well, you know, but there's scatter. And then they've done all these studies and they've shown it's really, it's really negligible. Essentially, if you're not irradiating it, it's not a major exposure. And you can go ahead and scan the head because you're not irradiating for any significant volume, any significant amount. You're not irradiating a place a meter away. You're really irradiating whatever you're studying. So even first trimester, you wouldn't be concerned with that? Well, today, nowadays, they don't even, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. They, they've stopped. It's been a while for X-rays. They don't shield anymore. Oh, really? really? Shielding no, is now stopped because they found that some of the shields cause a higher exposure, more scatter. So there's even discussion about whether or not shielding should be done. But The irony the, 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 behind that, right? <laughs> weird, no? But the part I want us to focus on is that there's one energy. You're going to expose whatever you're trying to study, a chest, a liver, whatever you're studying. And that's the area that's exposed to the energy, and that's the area that will be exposed to the predominant risks, if any, that's associated with that energy. Same thing with ultrasound. 
If I want to ultrasound your liver, I take an energy source, an ultrasound transducer, and I shine it at your liver. I don't shine it at your ankle. I shine it at whatever I'm trying to study. If there are any risks associated with that energy, it would be that liver that you're studying that's exposed to those risks. These are so self-evident that we don't even think about it. But then all of a sudden they come out with MRI. <laughs> and it's actually true that for the first time in all of diagnostic radiology, in our entire specialty, for the first time, it just doesn't work that way anymore. In order to generate an image with MRI, I don't take an energy source and shine it at my patient. I take three different energy sources. And in fact, if you don't have th these three different energy sources, you're not going to get an MR image. I have to use three different energy sources, which technically will break down to four. And I shine those at my patient. To make matters worse, where I shine them is not so self-evident. You may be studying the chest, and for some of those energies, you may be exposing the chest. For others of these energies, you may be exposing the head or the pelvis to maximum exposure, even though you're studying the chest. Similarly, what are the risks? The risks differ for each of these energies. And where those risks maximize will be dependent upon where do the energies maximize. And those locations where the energies maximize are not at all intuitive. So there's a lot in magnetic resonance when it comes to safety that isn't self-evident. It isn't so clear that anyone would understand it. And that's why I think the whole field of MR safety was actually born, because so many people recognize that there are so many questions that they have and whether or not it's safe to scan this patient or that implant or that device or that foreign body, that they realize it takes separate focus and separate study to try to understand and master all those different aspects. I would say that you were involved in a large capacity with the evolution of MRI safety. I mean, I gave you my can't first Google MRI safety and your name not show up. There's not <laughs> right. an MRI tech out there that doesn't know who Dr. Canal is. Well, thank you. I'm not sure if that's true, but I, I do know that it's... I'll take a poll. Many... Um, <laughs> in... in um, I guess it was in 1984. I was not sure what I was going to go into. I was in radiology and I was finishing up. Radi I'd been in surgery, then I went to medicine, then I went to radiology, and I didn't know what I wanted to do in radiology. And I woke my wife up in the middle of the night and I said, I know what I want to go into. I'm going to go into MRI. Oh, really? What made that light bulb go off for you like that? I love physics, I love math, I love science, and I love the challenge. You have a minor in physics, right? I minored in physics. I, I, I had a major in pre-med and in biology and a minor in, in physics. And um, I always loved math, and, and I thought it would be a, a nice challenge, and I thought it would be fascinating. And so I told Judy that I'm going to go in, I, I'm, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into MRI, which we didn't have in the city yet. And I remember like it was yesterday, she turned to me and she said, you woke me up to tell me that, but then after that, she said, <laughs> and after that, she said, um, is it safe? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was in 1984. Nice. And I'm still trying to find out. <laughs> I was two years old. <laughs> um, yeah, very cool. So very it kind cool. of evolved into what's now known as the Dr. Erwold, the canal method. Um, which is my understanding. It's basically, it's like, and obviously you're the better to explain it, but 
um, for what I've looked, it's kind of like a very interactive, or not interactive, but very like, a, it's an algorithm to help with MRI screening to, to judge right? the necessity, the risk versus reward, I guess, like, like I said, you'd be better to describe it, I guess. Well, it's, it's, um, I'm a pilot and most of what I've learned about methodologic approaches to safety come from the aviation industry. And so I've done my best to try to apply what I've learned in the aviation industry about safety to MRI. And if you stop and think about it, what is it that is different when you learn to fly than learn to drive? I'm, I'm assuming you guys drive a car. And how do you learn to drive in a car? You get in the car. Somebody says, press this, it goes faster. Press this, it slows down. Press when it's yellow, slam it on the floor and get across the intersection before it can turn red. That's it. Now you know everything <laughs> yeah. you need to know about driving. So all kidding aside, what's different about driving than flying? What's different the about the, the methodology of learning? If anything, you might say maybe it's harder to learn to fly because you have three dimensions instead of two. So why is it that the safety record for commercial aviation is frighteningly safe? Why is it the safest means of transportation just about out there? And there's so many car accidents. What are the differences between them? I guess the margin of error. Well, if of... you ever have a margin of error in, in a car, you run out of gas, you go walk to the nearest gas station. You don't have that margin of error in the plane, right? Right, that's true. Yep. If there's a margin of error, it's tipped towards the benefit of the car, not the plane. So if you go back and look at what is it that when people learn to drive versus when people learn to fly, what differentiates them? When, when someone learns to fly, there's two different things. There's two methodologies that I believe we're exposed to universally that a driver of a car never was exposed to when they learned to drive a car. And they are in no particular order. Number one, we use checklists. We use checklists. You get on a commercial flight. Well, do you remember back then we used to have flights before COVID? Never mind. So you get <laughs> yeah, on a commercial flight and you pass by the cockpit and you hear them, terrain, terrain, pull up. And you hear the, they're going through their different steps in the cockpit. You have to use a checklist. Everything is checklist, checklist, checklist. If you do everything perfectly on your check flight and you don't use a checklist, you failed on the spot. You must use your checklist. Don't ever abandon it. It prevents you from leaving a step out. That could be a, a major, a significant step. Also, as a pilot, you do that checklist the same way every single time you do it. Standardization. Wow. Every single time. Identical. And so the idea of checklists is one of the two things that we use in aviation that we don't use when we drive a car, but they work phenomenally. So the two apps that I've created, one of them is a checklist app. And the other, what else do we do in, in aviation? What do we use in learning to fly that we don't use when we learn to drive? To learn to drive, you grab the keys, you get behind the car, behind the wheel, and away you go. Nobody's going to ask you to practice stalling a 787. So how do you stall a 787 and show, demonstrate that you can recover from it? You do that. How do you get all these emergencies in a $180 million airplane? You do this with simulators. So the entire approach to flying is that we could make a simulator that is so unbelievably realistic 
that the Federal Aviation Administration allows hours in a simulator to count towards minimum hours required to demonstrate certain tasks and certain experience levels. So you're duplicating that due diligence, basically. That's what it is. Wow. All those things, all, all these scenarios you want to prepare for, but you don't want to actually do it in a real aircraft, let alone with people on board. So this is how you can have an engine flame out. This is how you can practice a failure. This is how you can practice an in-flight fire. My flaps fail to and get my uh, my wheels landing gear fails to to come. What do you? How do you practice an error that could be life threatening? You practice it with simulation. So the Magnet Vision app is an MR environmental simulator, five cubic millimeter accuracy simulation of all these different MR scanners and the environment in the the MR scanner that you would expect to see when you bring that patient. It simulates the patient. It simulates the implant. It simulates the environment. It simulates the hardware. It simulates and depicts graphically the fields and energies that you're going to be exposing that patient to, analyzes them, and gives you an output as to what the level of exposure would be before you actually go into the real-world situation with that patient with that implant, with that device or foreign body into that scanner. And the accuracy is just like real time? Well, it's as accurate. <laughs> as they say in programming, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> That's true. It's only as good as the program. As accurate right? as the information is in, right. the computer will give you that accuracy on the way out. Oh, that's awesome. So the idea of, of the simulation and the idea of checklists we're trying to apply them towards evaluation of MR safety because it provides something that's fa- extremely important, but pretty much missing throughout our industry, and that's standardization. To have a single standardized approach that you can apply every single time to assessing the safety of that patient or that device or this study and that magnet, the approach to assessing whether it's safe or not or whether there's the risk and the, be- and the benefit are appropriate to proceed with the scan or are they indicating that I should cancel the scan? The approach as to how to do that is standardized. The only thing that changes are the answers to the questions we ask every single time. The checklist is identical, but the answers are different from patient to patient to patient. In this situation, in that implant, in this position, in that study, in that magnet. And so we ask the same questions, but based on the answers, we determine what the risks might be and whether it's worth pursuing it or not. That's amazing. Because traditionally, you would think if something like, say, a knee, of the, like you have an implant and um, it's a pacemaker that's conditioned up to 1.5, right? And that pretty much means you definitely can't do that on 3T for a knee or anything like that, right? Or wherever. Um, but what you're saying is that it's more patient-oriented, right? So, and more exam-oriented. So we're more evaluating not necessarily the implant, but the patient, the implant that he has, the exam that he's having, which is more well-rounded. Let me give you an example. Yeah. First of all, let me start off with telling you what it is that this, the so-called canal method, what is it actually doing? And then we'll use an example to answer that specific question. We've already discussed how a chest x-ray is one energy, one location, one distributed field of potential risks, and we know exactly where that is. But we said it's not the same in MRI. But we recognize that the methodology of reviewing, can I safely expose this patient to this test if she's pregnant? The methodology is very, very sound. What energy is being exposed where? Is the risk of that exposure to the fetus, to the mother, better, higher, or lower than the potential benefit of the study we're about to e- e- execute? See. 
Right. And if it's substantially higher, we proceed with the exam. If it's substantially lower, we're not going to do that study. That approach makes perfect sense. So why not approach an MRI patient with the exact same methodology, but it's iterative? You have three different energies. Yes, yeah, so what? It's just math. So take the first energy, completely ignore the other two. I don't care which one you want. Let's say static magnetic field. That's one of the three energies. We're using a static magnetic field, three Tesla, one and a half Tesla, whatever. And that has its own potential risks. That has its own spatial distribution inside that MR scan room of where those energies will be when we're scanning this patient. Assess for that patient for the requested study where are the energies? Where's the implant or the device or foreign body? What are the exposures to that energy? Is it exceeding any safety threshold or is it well below a safety threshold? If you've made it safely, yeah, that's not a problem at all. Super. You're just not done yet. That's not a problem. Great. Put it right. aside. Go to your next energy. Do it again. It's like you're simplifying it, basically. You're standardizing. Standardizing. Yeah. You're standardizing. Awesome. You don't miss a step. Yeah. You go through all the potential risks, analyze them independently, and if you've made it through static field, if you've made it through gradient fields, if you've made it through radio frequency fields, those are the three main energy sources. Right. If you evaluate these three main energy sources, these flashlights that you're going to be irradiating your patient with, and every one of them, the risk is either not significant or the exposure is not that great, or, listen carefully, it may be that there's a high exposure but I can do something to mitigate the risk associated with that exposure. Yes, there's shrapnel. Yes, it could cause an injury. I can put, it's a small piece, I can put a pressure bandage and make the risk acceptable and mitigate the risk of it moving. They may get a black and blue mark, but nothing worse than an ecumenic uh, result from this study, and it won't be a significant injury. And I can, at the, on, the, on the other hand, I'll be able to tell if they have a hyperacute stroke. The benefit may massively outweigh a potential risk in that case. So if there is no risk from that energy, or you can find a methodology to mitigate that risk to acceptable levels, the RF can cause a significant injury, but I can decrease the amount of power I'll be depositing into this patient if I make the following changes to the sequence. If you get through the first energy, the second energy, the third energy, and there is either no significant exposure or you found a way to reduce it to acceptable levels, you sort of just ran out of reasons to cancel that patient, didn't you? Right. And you did it in a way you didn't leave any steps out. So it's not like you forgot to us. oh, shoot, I forgot I could cause a burn. Oh, I completely forgot about neurostimulation. No, you've, you've gone through all your steps. Combining a checklist with a simulator, you're going to cover all your bases. So the only thing that the canal method is trying to accomplish is the, the, the methodical, systematic approach, always identical, analyze the safety of every single one of these energies independent of the others, come to a conclusion. If it's a high risk, a high exposure, a high potential risk, and you can't mitigate it, you may not even be, you don't even have to go on to the other two energies. If the risk is so much higher than the potential benefit, maybe you're not going to do that study. If the patient has an aneurysm clip that's ferromagnetic and they're there for headaches, if it's a ferromagnetic aneurysm clip and he could die if it moves and I'm trying to evaluate for headaches, the vast majority of our CT and MR patients with headaches are normal. We don't find 
the pathology, the potential benefit is very low. The potential risk is life-threatening. Do you really think I'm going to go ahead and do an MRI in somebody with a ferromagnetic aneurysm clip for evaluating for headaches that he's had for the last 25 years? So if the risk is so great compared to the benefit, absolutely, I would agree that that's a patient we might want to consider canceling or finding another diagnostic option for. But it's almost always the exact opposite that we end up teaching with people. The exact opposite is that almost always we can find a way to mitigate the risks or there aren't significant risks. We just didn't know about it. So, for example, a person comes in. Now, let's go back to your question. Let's say the person comes in and has an abandoned cardiac lead. Abandoned cardiac lead. Let's say that we want to assess the, the main potential risks. Start with static field. The potential risks of a static magnetic field are a few. It's translation, something flying in, or projectile effect, for example, or rotation torque, lens effect, moving it in a field. Well, we don't think that translation and rotation is going to be an issue because for an abandoned lead, the ferromagnetic nature we're going to assume is essentially zero. From a clinical point of view, it's not going to go ripping out of his chest. It's not made out of iron. It's not going to be ferromagnetic. So let's say that we're in that case, theoretical case, we're going to assume that the static field risks are extremely low for translation and for torque, for rotation. Lens, I don't want to hear about it. I'm going to move him into the magnet and out of the magnet slowly. It's not a significant issue. I just took the entire energy static field and went right past it. It's safe. Move on. Next, radio frequency. From a radio frequency point of view, ooh, I'm not too happy now because from an RF point of view, if I expose this to significant RF energies, if I induce significant electrical fields inside an abandoned lead, I could theoretically cause substantial heating at specifically and especially the tip. Theoretically, worst case scenario, I might blow a hole in the heart and get cardiac tamponade, pericardial tamponade, and kill him. It's a worst case scenario. There's blood there that serves as a heat sink. Won't it help dilute it? Of course, but right now, we're not physicists. We're just trying to say what's the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is I could kill him. Let's leave that on the side for a minute. We certainly have not waltzed right by RF like we did for static fields. And then we went to the gradient. Some people will argue that the gradient field concerns are even greater than that of RF because the radio frequency concerns for heating. We could manage those with the blood serving as a heat sink. We can manage those that it's more central in the body, so it won't necessarily heat up as much as more peripheral. Perhaps you might also be able to manage it by decreasing the amount of power that you're transmitting and the amount of power that it's going to absorb from a gradient point of view. For most of the scanners out there today, there are exceptions, but for most of the scanners, you don't directly control the gradient DBDT. You don't control the rate of change that the gradients are being slammed on and slammed off. And it's the changing magnetic field gradients that's inducing a voltage, a voltage in an abandoned lead. Where's the other half of that lead? That lead tip is in the heart. So you could induce arrhythmogenesis. You could induce a life-threatening arrhythmia. So we've seen two significant potential risks here, theoretically, maybe, maybe up to and including life-threatening. So I think everybody would agree the case is canceled. But that's the problem. We just canceled a case, and no one is even wondering why. Why did they even ask you to do the case? What's the potential benefit? In fact, what part of the body did they ask you to scan? 
For the vast majority of the installed base, in my experience to date, doesn't mean it's fact, it's just my experience. For the vast majority of the installed base, that patient's canceled before they even got to those questions. So let's take an extreme for you. He's here because of... Um, let's find something extremely unimportant. A low... Oh, he has ankle pain. He's had it for 20 years. They want to evaluate his ankle. He's a basketball player. He's a professional basketball player. He's um, six foot 11. And they'd like to evaluate his right ankle. He has an abandoned intracardiac lead from here to here. You see it on a chest x-ray. Let's go over it again. Now let's do the canal method on the same patient. The same patient, same lead, but this time I'm specifying that I want to evaluate his ankle. He's five foot, he's six foot 11. You see where we're going with this. Right. Yeah. At six foot 11, the static field is going to be exposed to it, but we already said we weren't concerned about ferromagnetic interactions are not a major concern. We walk right by the, RF, the, the static field concerns, the 1.5 or 3T. What about the RF? Well, if I use the body coil to transmit, I have maybe 55, 60 centimeters above and below, 30 centimeters above and below whatever I'm, 30 centimeters. Last time I checked, that's about a foot, right. pun intended. <laughs> I'm down by the guy's foot. Now, just because I'm transmitting a foot above and below, it doesn't mean that the fields stop abruptly. In fact, they can go in body, in body tissue. In air, they do sort of attenuate pretty quickly the B1 oscillating transmitted magnetic field. But I'm not worried about those. I'm worried about the induced electrical fields. The oscillating magnetic field does not cause any harm. This does not cause the heating. The induced electrical fields cause the heating. And they can be a lot further. They can extend beyond the edge of that coil. But even if we're going beyond the edge of that coil, the guy is six foot 11. Right. We've got to go about four feet just to get to the bottom of a retained lead. This is just Manny's opinion. Anybody listening to this podcast doesn't mean you should be doing this on your patients. You understand that. <laughs> for my patients, I'm not even thinking about it. The RF is not for Manny Canal going to be a concern for my patient who's six foot 11 and I'm going to be scanning his ankle. I could even be willing to use the body coil, which has got a longer super inferior extent and greater exposures than a transmit receive extremity coil, which of course, if I had, I would use. Number three, the gradients. Now the gradients are really big, right? We're talking about 35 plus centimeters to where they max out. You're scanning the ankle, 35 approximate centimeters above and below that is maximizes out. Not that it's still there, it's like a seesaw, it gets like this, right? The center of the seesaw doesn't change. It's zero. If you're scanning the pituitary, the DBDT, the arrhythmogenic potential, is essentially zero in this at the pituitary gland, and it's greatest over the pacemaker. If you're scanning ahead, it's right here, isn't it? Yeah. So the neurosurgeon who says to you, would you stop giving me a, don't be such an obstructionist, Manny, do the study. I'm not asking you to scan his pacemaker, scan his pituitary. What he doesn't understand is that when you're scanning the pituitary, you max out one of the potential risks. In fact, perhaps the most serious one of arrhythmogenesis is maxed out over that abandoned lead. But now we're down by the ankle. And so I could make an extremely solid case that even that energy is going to be essentially trivial over the pacemaker. So I've just taken a patient who's life-threatening. Oh, because you were assuming I was going to scan his head? No, it was, it was an ankle. 
it's not a cord compression. It's not a life-threatening. It's it's a it's a relative. It's an elective procedure, and that exact same patient with the exact same implant, in the same magnet, positioned like this for that study. I may accept them outright, no delays for an elective study. And I may need to do a huge modification, if I accept them at all, to do a cervical spine for cord compression, which you would think that's much more pressing. You're right. But now I have to worry about two energies, which I might be able to handle and de decrease if you want. We can talk about that too, but it's an extremely different approach because for that one, while B0 is not a concern, DBDT the gradients and RF would be very significant potential concerns if I'm scanning up here for a cord compression over the guy's abandoned lead. So it, it forces the individual to standardize their approach to analyzing safety, go through every energy, look at the exact hardware being used. Are you using a transmit-receive head coil or are you using a body coil or even to the point of what coil's being used for transmission? Where is, the, in that patient, where is that implant or device or foreign body? What is the size and weight of that patient? The only thing that the simulator needs is gender, height, and weight. Gender, height, and weight. And then tell me where you positioned it relative to that, in that patient's anatomy. Then, how are you going to position it? Head first, feet first, to, to cube, supine, prone, arms up, arms down. Which magnet are you going to use? And once you've answered those questions... If we can sit here and calculate it just by talking about it, right. clearly a computer could do it, but could do it with more accuracy. So it sounds like the comparison is, is that yours is more, <clears throat> involves, I guess like the analogy that you just use is it's more simplified, it's more black and white, with yours is more gray, it requires more critical thinking, I guess. Standardized. The, yeah. um, like initially you said they just automatically say no, but what is it that we're scanning? How tall is this guy? Let's think about these things. Right. In, in 2014, I, I created courses for MR safety. I, I've been giving lectures on MR safety since, since 1984. The first time I got frustrated enough that I said, I can't cover this in 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so in June of 2014, we created courses on MR safety. And um, the first ones were 16 hours long, and they quickly went to 20 and then 24 hours. The motto for the course... is it's easy to say no. It takes knowledge, understanding, and a willingness to apply it to say yes. I feel like that's attributed to, like, when you, as an MR tech that's getting into the field, you're, you're really cautioned about MRI safety and the concerns with that and the liability that comes with it. And so I think there's almost like a shift. Like initially, we're just like, come on, you guys, we need to take MRI safety seriously. But now it's like, well, actually, um, maybe we can do this patient that maybe a year ago we said we wouldn't be able to do because we've given it more thought now. And well, and there's never really truly been out. a tool out there where everyone's doing it the same, right? Because usually you're going online, you're looking up the device and trying to see what the conditions are and if it can be scanned on your 3T or on your 1.5. And everyone does that differently. Everyone does that differently, whether they get the information from the IFU or the information for use or they're going to a website that has it. Um, so... I'm so excited about your app here. And well, and that's what I like, because yeah. like you said, you standardize it. Um, 
And well, so you can't you, use the FDA labeling, for example, for a piece of shrapnel. Right, exactly. So that, that if somebody's only approach is what was the labeling of the device, then they're limited by two things. Number one, they're limited for things that have labels. And number two, they're limited by, this may not be the time to elaborate, but they're limited by what the label happens to say. People are under the misunderstanding that that which is on the label has been shown to be safe, and anything not on the label is not safe. The first half is true. In order for it to be on the label, the FDA has to have been convinced, at least in the United States, that the FDA is our regulatory body, and they have to have been convinced that there is data to support the claims made on the label, the IFU, the instructions for use. This thing will cure cancer? Show me. And if you can convince the FDA that it cures cancer, you will be permitted to market and say this will cure cancer. So indeed it is true that that which is in the product label has, to the satisfaction of the FDA, been shown to be safe. If it says MR conditionally safe or MR safe, that's what it means. Unfortunately, we tend to misunderstand and people think that if it's not on the label or if it's unlabeled, then by definition it's unsafe. That's unfortunate. There are many, many reasons why something may not be labeled for a certain application or a certain force or a certain magnitude of that force. For example, there's a very strong financial incentive for many manufacturers to get something approved as labeled for any level. I have this device. If I can get this approved at 0.1 watts per kilogram, I can now do something I couldn't do before. Do you know what that is? Sell it. Scan it one slice per minute. <laughs> I could sell it, right. which I could not market it before. So it may be that 0.1 watts per kilogram is not clinically realistic. You may have to do one slice and then wait another five minutes and then do an I agree. But that's a very strong marketing reason to get something approved at a, le a level that is easily approvable by the FDA because the FDA is not there to make you make a profit. They're there to make certain that your claims are honest. And if you only want to claim 0.1 watts per kilogram, you can get approved or not approved for 0.1 watts per kilogram. It may be safe up to 0.4 watts per kilogram. Just because it says 0.1, we don't know what the safety is at 0.4. Many people say, so let's presume that it's not safe. That's true. You can presume that. It's just not necessarily based in science. The actual meaning of 0.1 watts per kilogram as being MR conditionally safe is what do we know about 0.4 watts per kilogram in that case? Nothing. The only thing we know, listen carefully, is that no claims are being made about 0.4 watts per kilogram. It doesn't mean that it's not safe, and it sure doesn't mean that it is safe. It means we're not making any claims. Have a nice day. You're on your own. And so that's how the industry develops. It, that's a perfect example. When Medtronic comes out with a deep brain stimulator approved at 0.1, and then as some of the peer-reviewed articles refer to them as intrepid researchers do studies and said, wow, I did a bunch of these patients at 0.2 and 0.3 and it works just fine. And I wrote an editorial on that approach. And people are, they, they, they say, well, if that's the case, let's try this approach. And, let's try. and so the industry then develops 
it's labeled at 0.1, but we all have tried it and it was fine at 0.26 or whatever the levels are. And as that envelope gets pushed and as their peer review publications, peer review publications defines how we practice medicine, not product labels. And that's a tremendous misunderstanding. And people think that if it's not on the product label, I can't scan that patient. But unfortunately, I mo not only can I, I have to. I am duty-bound to provide for that patient what's referred to as the standard of care. And if the standard of care is not in the product of label, and not in the product labeling, nobody cares. The product labeling does not define the standard of care, the practice of medicine, the peer-reviewed literature, society declarations. That's how the standard of care is defined, not by what the FDA allows them to write in, a, in an instructions in for use. Right. That's awesome. Well, yeah, well, I'm excited to see for you to take us kind of through your application. Uh, yeah, you're showing it to us before the recording, and I was super impressed. It, it seems great. really uh, user-friendly for one. Yeah. So you, we work with a physicist I think would love it. Uh, shout out to Dr. Panda. Hi, I, Dr. I can't Panda. imagine anyone who works in the field that would not literally see this as beneficial. And this, the time saver, oh my gosh. And what's what I like about your app is there's variables to consider, and I feel like you've considered those, right. um, all of those. And so you've covered that gray area, whereas a lot of places, like I said, are black and white. So like you've considered body habitus and you've considered um, these sort of things. Um, I find it really interesting. If we could, uh, I'd love to like pull it up and have you just kind of play with it and show our audience. Sure. If it's okay with you, then I'll tell you what. I'll, let's just do an, an abbreviated introduction as to what it's trying to accomplish. And, and then if you have specific questions, well, I'll try to, to take them as well. So the, the first thing to, to recognize is that the app is actually defined... Please forgive me, but um, it's my app. I define it. <laughs> the, um, the app is defined actually to be used. It's designed specifically to be used predominantly by a technologist. The output of the app is designed to then be transmitted electronically, I might add, um, HIPAA compliant, to a radiologist who then says yes, no, or yes under the following methodology, go ahead and scan, and then that is then implemented clinically. So it's here to help tie together the MR medical director, MR safety officer, MR safety expert triumvirate approach that we've had since November of 2016, MRMD, MRSO, MRSE, into clinical care. And we're not expecting the technologist to make any decisions a decision, a risk-benefit decision, is something that is allocated to the physician who's licensed to practice in that state, and she or he is going to have to make that end final decision. But once that decision is, once the information is provided to them, the technologist will simulate the environment they're about to put the patient into. Once that information is then provided to the radiologist, they can review the data, they can review the facts, they can say, this is fine, this is not fine, or if you do the following and limit SAR or what have you, then go ahead and do it and then send that back to the technologist who can then implement as per those orders. So it's meant to be part of the team approach as to how to scan and whether or not you should scan in assessing patient care for patients, predominantly patients with implants, devices, or or foreign bodies. So there are, there are multiple rooms. We won't go into detail on all of them. It's, it's a massive app, so let's just focus on the important aspects of it. There are five rooms. There's a waiting room. I'm sorry, four rooms. There's a waiting room. There's an implant room. There's an operating room. And there's an MRI room. The concept is that when the patient, when the technologist walks in in the morning, they turn on the scanner, and then they go to the waiting room to bring their first patient into the scanner. So the intent is to have them use the app before the patients get there. 
For example, you look at tomorrow's schedule. Let's see. Tomorrow I have Joe Smith. Joe Smith is um, five foot nine and is um, 187 pounds. And um, they have a, a piece of shrapnel in their right elbow. And he's here for a head CT, a head MRI for headaches. So they'll then create, they'll enter. They don't ha- you don't have to put in any HIPAA information if you want to just use it for teaching and for learning. You don't need to enter any HIPAA information. If your institution wants you to use it as a HIPAA-compliant hardware, you can do that as well. But you enter three things it needs for simulation, gender, height, weight. So you enter 5'9", male, 187 pounds. And it will then generate that patient for you. So here's a patient that is uh, 154.3 pounds. I must have entered 70 kilogram and uh, one meter and 80 centimeters tall. So this patient male looks like this. This is the app's assessment of what that patient looks like. And it's a 3D environment, as I told you. So again, this is the 3D appearance of, of that patient. And you can fine tune it. So if you say the patient is, um, no, the patient's a lot heavier than that. So you can uh, you can change the dimensions if you want to and make the patient heavier, or you can make the patient lighter, you can make them stronger, you can take different parts. If it's a female, you can have, she's in her seventh month of pregnancy and you can change that. So you, you, you fine tune the patient to as an approximation, a rough approximation of what that patient will look like that's going to be on your schedule for three o'clock the next day. After you've got the patient where you think it essentially mimics the the body habitus of the patient you're about to scan the next day, you go to the implant room. This patient has a piece of shrapnel. The patient has an aneurysm clip. The patient has a deep brain stimulator, whatever they have, or it could be multiple, of course. You go to the implant room, grab that implant, and then you go into the operating room. And in the operating room, the patient shows up, and you can make any part of that patient transparent, invisible, translucent, or fully opaque. And you can say, let's make that, it's a pacemaker. Let's grab the pacemaker and you just drag it and drop it to the position in that patient's body to mimic what's going on in the patient the next day. So here's your patient the next day. I forgot what it was. Shrapnel in the right elbow. You grab a piece of shrapnel metal. It's labeled as metal. You drab, drop it into the guy's right elbow. Now you take that patient to the last room. And that's the room that really counts, the MRI room. So when you go into the MRI room, the active patient is following you at all times. So now you're in the MRI room and the patient you've just defined who has shrapnel in their right elbow or whatever is now in your MRI room. And in this room, you pick whichever scanner that How cool we is have. that? That's what I'm saying. It's so user-friendly. And I feel like you've thought of everything with this one. Nice. Well, it's not me that's thought of everything because you have to remember that who am I asking to help me define what we need? I'm asking technologists. I'm asking radiologists. I'm asking physicists. There are parts of this app that are specifically designed for the physicist. There are parts of the app that are specifically designed for the radiologist. And the majority of the user interface is designed for the technologist. So it's the feedback from Pretty the end thoughtful. users that helps us determine how we created the the interface. So now you're in the MRI room and you can pick whatever magnet that it models. We model a few dozen. In fact, right now, um, General Electric um, just told us that we're up to about 85 to 90% of their installed base worldwide is now modeled in this in this app. Coiled so as well? Their 85 to 90% of their worldwide installed base models oh, scanners are, are you can choose from amongst them and, and pick them and it'll be in the app and, oh, and available. Uh, All what the, what should, vendors do you have on there? Just curious. We have right now GE, we have Hitachi, we have Philips. We do not have um, Siemens, we do not have Canon at this point. 
And um, I don't know if about how many phonars are out there. I don't have phonar um, here either. There may be some phonar systems that are operating. I, I don't have phonar modeled either at this stage. So, but of the ones that when you do go into the room and you say, I'd like to change the scanner, if you pick GE, these are the GE scanners that you can pick from. And and, is, and the same thing applies to any other system. If you want to pick a, a different competitor scanner or whatever, you can pick whatever scanner is modeled and bring them into that room. And again, with five cubic millimeter accuracy, the dimensions, the fields, everything you're going to see comes from the manufacturers. They provide the data about their scanners and we then massage it and present it in a way that we think is acceptable for the end users to, to work with. So, so, so when you say that information, you're talking about all that, uh, you know, the EM fields that we were just talking about, right? With your spatial gradient, um, your RF uh, gradient, and then your static field, right? And that's the information you're talking about that is supplied by the vendors? Nice. All the, all the fields and energies that we're about to show and it's going to be color-coded, and you'll be able to see how strong the fields are in different locations in that bore in different locations in the room. All that information is provided directly by the vendors of the, of the yes, scanners. Yes, you Correct. collaborated with them. That's awesome. That is nice. Right. I, I think the, the truth is the miracle of the, of the app is not the graphics. It's not the equations. It's not the science behind it. The it's the companies. It's that manufacturers the ever yeah. trusted us enough to say, yes, we want to get this information out there so that people can do it safely. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that's the strongest part of the entire app is the the companies it's, wanting to work together in collaboration with I the end users to make it more understandable and more safe for the for the patients in the end. For sure. Plus, I think that's it's important amazing. to like kind of integrate the two. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's awesome. That is amazing. The... Um, the environment, as I said, is 3D, so everything you see in front of you can be manipulated, like, like we can rotate this around. It's, it's a completely 3D environment. And one of the things that we do for teaching purposes is that we can make the magnet or parts of the magnet visible or invisible. So if we take the right-hand side of that magnet and we make the plastic outer wall invisible, we're sort of revealing that, I made it copper looking, it's not copper, but I just wanted <laughs> to, make it, to have you think of that, you looked at that reflective surface as if it's wires. That's the magnet coil. And inside that are the gradient coils. And you can see why they could be called thumbprint or fingerprint coils as well. Right. And for our, our audience that aren't as wise to the physics of MRI, it's the gradient coils that make the most of the loud noises that you hear as a patient. The noise that we hear is coming from the gradients being activated and deactivated, turned on, reversed, turned on, reversed in the presence of a powerful magnetic field. That's correct. So one magnet in the presence of another suddenly appearing magnetic field, they try to align relative to this powerful field, and that's the torque that you're hearing is the vibration as we do that tens of thousands of times per second. Inside that is a body coil, an RF coil. Inside that is the inner plastic, and inside that, of course, would be where the patient is. So if we take this patient now and let's position him for a, in fact, let's position him for a brain study. So we turn the lasers on, and we put it to, um, I always like to say canthomiatal line, because it's just about the only thing I can do, and everything else I'm inept at. So I just hit set. So we just set that to be the center. Now I say move. So now the patient's being advanced to the scan now. Now that means that this patient is now being advanced so that the position of that patient is exactly what you established as zero, it moves that to the theoretical zero center point of your, of your scanner. So now the patient's in there, but where are the fields? 
Well, they're invisible. That's why we call this magnet vision, because it's trying to take <laughs> the invisible and, and make it visible. So if you look at the um, scanner now, there's, uh, there's four, under the, in the image in front of you, there's four, uh, like a hidden drawer underneath the, the bottom half of the bottom quarter of that image is, is a drawer that comes up. Here, I'll make it come up again. So that drawer has four different panes. The second pane has all these fields in it. B0 field, I'm going to press on that right now, and that's the static magnetic field. And this is three-dimensionally, this is the static magnetic field color-coded of that MR scanner. So where it's red, it's, it's 1.5 Tesla in this example. And where it's higher than, when it's white, it's higher than 1.5. Where it's yellow, green, or blue, it's, it's, it's lower than 1.5. And this is the three-dimensional spatial distribution of that static magnetic field. There's also, this is predominantly responsible for translation, the things flying in, but actually more so for torque, things oh, rotating. Right. The predominant energy responsible for things flying in translation, the missile effect, the projectile effect, is actually not the field strength, ironically. It's how rapidly the field changes in space. Mm, if I have a wrench flying. and the whole wrench is exposed to three Tesla and I let go, it's just going to fall. It's not going to go anywhere, but if there's gravity, it'll fall down because it has no reason to go one way or the other. But if the same wrench is exposed to a difference in magnetic field across it, it will translate, move, towards the higher field. The greater the flux density, the greater the attraction in that direction, the greater the difference in field between here and here, the greater the pull. And so if you look at the center, you see how red the center is? That's very homogeneous. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. It has to be because as you guys know, we need a homogeneous magnetic field in order to do MRI. Otherwise, you're going to get all kinds of artifacts. So we go to great lengths to try to provide a very homogeneous magnetic field in the center of the bore. But if it's a homogeneous magnetic field, that means that there's no difference. dB, dx, difference in field here versus here versus here is essentially zero. So if I could do not do this at home. <laughs> if I could theoretically take a crowbar, a wrench made out of iron into the center of an MR scanner, and let go, it's just going to fall. It's, it's so not intuitive. But in the center of that bore, there's no translation. Torque is tremendously strong because it's a very strong magnetic field. But translation is essentially zero because it's a homogeneous field in the center. Now, as you try to get to the center, oh my gosh, now here it's much stronger than here, and here it's even stronger than here. So that's what makes it translate and head in that direction. So where are the difference in fields, dBdx, because that's going to be predominantly telling you the translational forces to map that out. Well, before I do, you invited me for an interview, but <laughs> may as well give you a test. <laughs> We're ready. This is what I was worried what's about. Going to be the, uh, <laughs> what's going to be the translational force? What's going to be the color? When I hit dBdx field, the difference in magnetic field, when it's very, very different, it'll be red, purple, white, It'll be blue or invisible if there's no difference. What the red now in the center, what's going to be the dBdx field in the center of the scanner when I press dBdx? What's it going to show me in the center? I feel like it's going to be blue. It's going to be blue or invisible. Or, yeah, Excellent. not there. So this is the dBdx plot of the same machine. Okay, no more so, questions. I'm one for one. <laughs> <laughs> You're one for one. It was perfect. So in other words, translation in the center is essentially zero, but look where it's greatest, at the edge of the oh, yep. magnet. 
Yeah. At the edge of, remember that magnet that we had before? Let's turn the magnet back on. Remember the magnet? Yeah. So at the edge wow, of the magnet is where that field is greatest. I'm definitely a visual person, and this is. How excited were you when you thought of this idea and somebody came to and you it came with, together with this model? I can't imagine how thrilled you were. The excitement was not so much when I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> the excitement was when others first saw it. Right. And they seemed to It's amazing. Well, we like just it. first saw this moments before we started this recording, and we were in awe. Right. I can't believe how cool this I've is. I heard about it, but I just wasn't expecting this. Well, let's just take this as an example. So this is the B, the DBDX. This is the excite the the one that's mostly responsible for translational forces for things getting sucked up into the scanner. Okay, what about the DBDT, the imaging gradients? Remember, with those oh. are we have supero inferior, left right, right antero posterior. There's all three, and they're all zero zero zero, the same exact part of a millimeter in space. So the imaging gradients, if you have a 70-centimeter bore, it's about 35 centimeters left and right, 35 centimeters front and back, and 35 centimeters above and below you approximately is where they're going to max out because the seesaw moves the greatest at the ends. So if I now take the same person, put them again laterally, this was B0, this is DBDX, but this is DBDT. If I turn on the imaging gradients, you can see why. It's right in the center of that grading coil is where it maxes it out. Can you see it? Yeah. So the gradients will max out, not on the head. I'm doing a chest x-ray, and I'm exposing the chest, and where is the greatest carcinogenic risk? Where I'm not studying. That will be the equivalent in the metaphor I gave you before. I'm scanning a pituitary gland, and where is the greatest risk of neuroexcitation? Outside of the head away from the area that I'm examining. Extremely not intuitive. But I think in my field, in radiology, I think there's a huge percentage of my coworkers, my colleagues in radiologists and in technologists, not the physicists, but for the technologists and for the radiologists, I think a huge percentage of us are very, very visual graphic people. And I could write an equation or I can plot the equation it just seems in my decades of experience in the field that radiologists are more comfortable on the plotted side and physicists are more comfortable on the equation side. And the only value that I have, if I have any value, is that I love to translate because I love both sides. And you go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> so this shows that if this guy has a pacemaker, which as in a moment I'll show you he does, you're scanning the brain and where is the greatest red Right over his chest. Yeah. Let me let me make that patient's skin invisible. Now can you see that red pacemaker? Yeah. Almost exactly under where the gradients are maxing out. So if the patient would be further away, then the pacemaker can turn green again. Can you see that? We can also put on these, I call them breadcrumb tracks. These breadcrumbs that it leaves as you move him in, and it shows you that Based on the position in space, he has mul this patient has multiple implants. He has an aneurysm clip, he has a pacemaker, he has shrapnel, but it leaves breadcrumb tracks as he moves into the scanner, and we say advance him to scan. Each of these implants or devices or foreign bodies is going to leave tracks, and they turn color red, yellow, or green. 
based on the specific energy that you're trying to display. So if you're displaying dBdt at this point, you're showing the gradients. This is showing you the gradients are maxing out in the position and it turns the implant and the tracks red at those locations. And yellow, if you can see right before it turned red, it means you're approaching. And green means it's quite low and nowhere near a safety threshold. And it can do that for each of the energies. This is for dBdt. This is for B0. This is for dBdx, the spatial field gradient. And the last energy we hadn't talked about yet is the radio frequency energy. This is the plot of the radio frequency energy of a body coil. Oops. Let's get rid of this, move him over here, and magnify it back up. This is the body coil of, what machine are we using again? A 450W GE 1.5 Tesla. These are the RFB1 oscillating magnetic fields in air, unloaded coil. Now, what does that have to do with the electric fields that will be induced in a patient inside the scanner? Almost nothing. But it's, we have to start from somewhere. If I don't know even what am I irradiating, how am I going to know where the electric fields I'm going to induce are going to be? So they would, people tend to think that the radio frequency exposure is very homogeneous. I dare say, looking at this image, does that look homogeneous no, to you? <laughs> In fact, maybe this is a good way to end this part of the, of the discussion. Radio frequency energies have several associated potential risks. By far, in my opinion, the predominant one is burns. So let's take this same patient, and instead of looking at him from the side, let's look at him from the top. You know what I'm saying? We're going to look down oh, on, this, yeah. on this gentleman. And let's make the other side of the magnet now invisible as well so that we can see the entire patient. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So now I'm looking down at the patient. The, magnet is, the whole magnet has been turned invisible on top, and now I'm just going to look straight down at him. Where do you think would be the greatest chance of this patient experiencing a burn? Well, well right I know down. typically it's, it's the most lateral position, but... What part of this patient do you think is exposed to the greatest B1 oscillating I mean, It looks magnitude. like his shoulders from here. Right? Now you understand why shoulder right? burns are associated yeah. with these studies. With one picture, you instantly can explain to the technologist why you have to take padding seriously. I'm scanning ahead. I can get a third-degree burn on the shoulder. What are you talking about? Right. Do that with a CT scan. Right. It, that's the whole point we're trying to say. It's multiple energies, but more than that, the energies are not used the way we're used to thinking of them. I don't just shine ultrasound at your liver. Give me my picture. I distribute these energies in such unusual patterns, and the risks are distributed in these unusual locations. It's entirely possible if this person had a wire right now that was in his neck, and the other end of the wire went to his ankle, I can cause a third-degree burn on this guy's ankle. In this position, exactly as you see for a pituitary study. And that's the concept that we're trying to get across, that understanding MR safety is, is a science. It's truly a science. Those physicians, those technologists, those physicists that have dedicated themselves to actually becoming more knowledgeable, more experienced, more capable in this area, Hats off to them. They've literally decided that they're going to turn this into a profession, not just button pushing. Right. This is their profession. They truly want to earn the name technologists, right. understanding 
the science behind what they're doing so that they can do it safer and more efficiently. To me, it seems that the pictures are worth a thousand words. Oh, yeah. And being able to see that it's an extremely heterogeneous distribution of the energies that we're irradiating makes it easier for them to understand why, if I could just stick something between the white areas where it's so powerful of an exposure, maybe it won't cause the brain. And this is just an average sized person who is more likely to get flush up in the middle of that white area, morbidly obese, a football player. And that's why they're the ones that experience those type, I call them proximity burns, they experience that more frequently. In fact, since the app, again, it's once it's in a computer, it doesn't let you leave out steps. So right. as soon as you enter gender, height, weight, and you pick a scanner, it will automatically warn you. Our calculations suggest that this patient may be at a higher risk for a proximity burn. Be extra careful about padding this patient. It will, it will automatically even go so far for other gender heights and weights. It may say to you, our calculations suggest your patient will not fit into this scanner tomorrow at three. Maybe you should look for a different scanner to use. Why find that out only after they show up? Right. Maybe if you if we have we have population defined norms so that if you look at a fe- if we say you have a male and I showed you I can graphically make him fatter. You can do that with a female too, but as you draw the slider and you add weight to a female, the app will not add weight to a female the same way it adds it to a male because women and men deposit it differently. We have a beer belly, right? Right. Women more of the thighs. So we know that and we use population norms for how we change the magnitude of that patient's fat distribution. And it'll use that to help guide you and perhaps warn you this patient is going to be at a greater risk for a certain type of burn or maybe too large to fit. Once the data is there... There's almost no end to how you can apply it to more efficiently and safely scanning your patients. Well, I think the benefits that this provides is undeniable. I mean, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing this. Yeah, thank it's you amazing. for sure. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So, since we are here, we're discussing the topic of MRI safety. There was a couple of questions that I've talked to some of my coworkers and said, "Hey, I'm going to be meeting with Dr. Canal. Is there any questions you want me to ask?" <laughs> Get in line, please. Uh, <laughs> so, this questions for sure. Um, so if you don't mind, we'll just kind of breeze through these real quick. Uh, one question I for sure wanted to ask you, has there ever been a time that a tech has refused to scan an implant that you've cleared? And if so, how did you handle it? Wow. That um, is a specific topic covered in my course. Is it? Oh, is it? It literally is a specific. I use that to illustrate a point. Um, we have a technologist that um, came to Pittsburgh. Specific. The technologist moved to Pittsburgh to work with me moved with their family. They were wonderful. And there was something that needed to be done. And um, I contacted them by phone. It was an emergent case. And there was a very, very strong reason not to do it. But I thought that if we did A, B, and C, we would be able to scan that patient for an extremely important um, emergent indication. And then we could do it safely. So I contacted that technologist and explained what we needed. And um, said, please follow it exactly like this X, Y, and Z, and we'll be able to scan them safely, and, and we can't delay because it's emergent. And that individual called me back and um, a few minutes later and said, Dr. Cannell, I am so, so sorry. I can't scan this patient. And um, so we go through the course. We discuss exactly what what I did and how we scanned. We did end up scanning the patient, but... Um, the, case, the only thing I'll say here on, on this podcast is that's a clear failure. And the failure is in, there's only one place failure can ever lie, right? And that's the captain of the ship. I am the captain of my ship. 
And his not accepting the order to scan that patient means that there was a problem in my ship and that my patient almost suffered because of it. And luckily, we had another technologist there that I was able to speak with who said, I'll take care of it right away and did. So um, what we did and how we handled it, I'm going to leave that as a bit of a mystery for, for right now. <laughs> I like the teaser. Well, I got actually... But, um, um, he's a superb technologist, and you have to also imagine what kind of courage it took him yeah, no, to I'm pick all. up the phone and call me and say, I am so sorry, yeah. I can't do this. That took a lot of guts. Do you have another MR conference coming up? I know the whole Next state one is of in November. November. Nice. And they can get access to that through your website, right? Or register? It's not my website. It's Northwest Imaging Forms. I, okay. I, like everything else in life, my wife just points me to an airport and says, get on this plane. And I <laughs> and just do it, right? <laughs> I do the teaching, everything else. That's awesome. You don't want me handling it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Well, uh, another question I wanted to ask you for sure is just recently I was online and I saw that there was a tech out there who would advertise that they are currently being set up to do, to do remote scanning. And I'm curious about your thoughts on remote scanning. So there's um, at least one company that has made a big deal about remote scanning. And this is just my opinion and nothing more. I think it's brilliant. I think the ability to have the companies getting together or, or defining ways to allow remote expertise to assist in areas where that expertise might not be there for real-time scanning, my opinion, I think it's superb. Having said that, the site is responsible for the safety of that exam. The safe execution of that MR study, that patient can't fall through the cracks. And as long as that's still being scanned by this site, this site is responsible for that patient's safety. Now, how they wish to internally allocate that safety responsibilities with a company or with a remote technologist, I'll leave it to the courts to worry about. But one thing is for certain, if anybody asks me my opinion, as they frequently do in a courtroom, my opinion is that the site who's handling that patient, not remote, the site is responsible for the safe execution of that examination. And that kind of leads me to my next question is, what if there was a reaction? Does that liability fall the on the site tech? site is responsible for the safe execution of that MR, MR study. The, the United States government considers MRI, by the way, NCT, to be a medical imaging procedure. As a medical imaging procedure, it therefore means that somebody trained in the safe execution of that medical procedure is going to be on the books found liable for its safe execution, like any other medical imaging procedure. I like to use the example, imagine if a gastroenterologist is doing an upper GI up, he's scoping somebody from upper GI, and he sees something, he thinks it may be an ulcer, he wants to biopsy, he biopsy, and he perforates. Imagine if during the per he perforates, he sees he just perforated this guy's stomach. Imagine if the gastroenterologist says, oh, man, somebody's going to be in trouble for that. I wonder who, but somebody is going to be in trouble. <laughs> right. Well, it means somebody. Who's executing this procedure? Now, you can point to a technologist, but the technologist, as you know, is following someone's orders. And it's not the referring physician's orders because the referring physician can easily document in court that they've never had any training in MRI. In fact, they have signed a radiology consultation form, just like they have a GI consultation form for you to execute an upper GI. 
So when it comes to this medical imaging procedure called MRI, it's child's play for an attorney to establish in court that there's only one physician in the entire hospital that has any formal training in this imaging modality and its execution. And that's the radiologist, or in some cases it could be a cardiologist, depending on the magnet, depending on who, but that physician is responsible not just for accurate interpretation and timely transmission, no. but also safe execution. When I think of logistically how that would play out, I feel like it would be it would conflict with ACR staffing recommendations. I don't think it's a conflict because it has to be added. Oh, you want to scan? Sure. Be my guest. Somebody here is going to be in charge of this patient, right? Yeah. So if there's nobody in the room, I can think that would be a bit of an issue. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm being 100% serious. If there's nobody in the room, absolutely. I think that's a significant issue. Right. Are you giving contrast? Is there a physician by? Who's going to be direct supervision of that contrast administration? Right? Somebody. Right. During COVID, CMS has relaxed their guidance and has allowed electronic supervision. But in normal times, if I can use the word normal, because COVID's been going on for so long, I don't remember what normal is. But under normal circumstances, who's going to be responsible for it? Someone's going to be supervising. And that supervision means that they have to be directly available and interruptible. Hmm. Well, as a person who appreciates the interaction with patients, um, I really, uh, really enjoy that interaction. I just feel like you're going to lose out on that and uh, as a remote scanning tech. I mean, I would love I love the idea of scanning in my pajamas. That seems awesome, but um, I, don't know, I just feel like you, you're missing out almost. I, if I think what I, I believe what I'm picking up from you is that you're suggesting that the implementation or at least a suggested implementation that you're concerned about too far is somebody scanning remotely and there's nobody local. And to me, that would be extremely Problem. problematic. But in most cases, this is going to be utilized for like specialized cases, like studies, like for places maybe in the middle of nowhere that don't have a technology that can scan cardiacs. And they want a cardiac exactly example I was going to use. And they want somebody that's familiar with and specifically can implement cardiac. And they'll say to you, no, 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 this is where I want you to put the leads. And this is how I'll, I'll scan them. And I'll set up the TRs that I want to be every third heartbeat. Yep, they can. The people that that can contribute expertise. Right. Now, if what you're saying is it's in a, it's being implemented or you're concerned that it's being implemented in a manner that removes anyone from being directly interacting with this patient yeah. and actually supervising the care. Because there's course, value in that, for sure. Right. I'm sorry? You, there's value in that. Like spending that time with the patient, not only do you learn their history, but um, you learn their tolerance to the exam itself. So, for example, if I have a patient that says, hey, I'm just going to sleep during this. Just keep it running. Well, I'll just keep it running. I won't check in with you as often as a patient who says, I'm super claustrophobic. Can you talk to me every two minutes? I'll talk to you every every chance I possibly get. Um, and you miss out on that, I feel like, personally. But, I mean, it's, it's too new to kind of, I guess, determine those sort of things. But that's my initial thought. I love the idea of remote expertise being added to the environment. I do not condone replacing Meaning, right. there's nobody here except for um, a human being, an, an LPN or something that will pull well, a patient out. What I out see is it's going to end up being tech aides. A tech aide. Right. If the if the only person that's there is the tech aide, then who's actually responsible for overseeing safety? Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. why the ACR's most recent publication yeah. is the ACR manual for ACR manual and MR safety has now superseded all of our guidance documents that we've had until now, 2002, 2004, 2007, 2013, and 2019. And all of those are now replaced as of a few weeks and months ago 
by the ACR Manual on MR Safety. And that document specifically addresses the issue of remote scanning. Okay. Re remote technologist expertise. Right. And then on another factor to consider is I know Medicare has strict guidelines. I'm curious how does that ref remote scanning affect reimbursements and stuff like that? If there's concern for the, in that side of it? One of the things I've learned in my 40 plus years in the field is that I will no way try to tell you what on CMS's mind. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, well, diving into some other questions that I have some coworkers want me to ask you. Some of these are questions I wanted to ask, but um, water is conductive. So I guess what I'm getting at is patients who show up with wet hair, is that concerning? Wet hair? Yeah. Um, we have one patient that I was aware of that experienced a burn from lying in soiled adult diapers. Mm -hmm. oh. um, wet hair, assuming that it's uh, not just wet, but it's like sweat, so it's electrically conductive, let's say, is it going oh. to be a problem? Do I believe it is? No. Could it theoretically be? One of the things physicists have taught me is to be very careful about uh, saying yes or no dogmatically. Would I do anything about it? Sure. I don't want their wet hair in my scanner, and it has nothing to do with just safety alone. I don't want them going to my scanner with wet hair, period, for all kinds of things, including infectious, communicable, whatever. I, I'm going to have right. them dry it off before they go in there. Yeah. But um, also, I don't know what it's wet with. We've had um, many, many years ago, we had a, a young college student who we tried to scan and could not get a pre-scan. We could not get a signal. And she had what I like to refer to as big hair. Let's just leave it at that. And um, so we asked her if she would mind if our chief tech would shampoo her hair in a prep room and then put her back in. And she said, not at all. And they did. And we shampooed her. And then we put her in. And it was a perfect signal. Oh, wow. So I, we don't know to this day. I, she, I did ask her. She did tell me. And there was a list of seven or eight things that she had in her hair. I went out and bought every one of them. I could not reproduce the signal loss. But wow. there were certainly things there that were interfering with the signal. So amongst other reasons, I don't want people going in there with wet hair. The, the greasy, oily-looking kind of hair. That, I don't know what that is. I have no reason to. I don't want that in my, in my scanner. Nice. I'm glad I asked. Um, yeah, one. Another one would be like as far as contraindications for MRI and not just like an overall like dead stop, but maybe like let's put it on hold for a little bit. What about severe fevers? A oh, patient excellent question. Um, the entire concept of elevating core temperature, it is indeed a serious issue for a human to have a core temperature get too high. There's no question. That's, that's very well studied and well known. Um, I think you will find that virtually all of our regulations when it comes to RF are based on potential to change and elevate core temperature. I am famous or notorious for criticizing the amount of attention and focus that has been given. To be quite blunt, since I started MRI in 1984, I'm not aware of a single patient in the world ever to experience an injury in an MR scanner because of diffuse elevation of patient's core temperature. Okay. Not mm -hmm. one out of several hundred million. And you would have heard of all people, you would have known. <laughs> I would have been looking for them all these years. Right, okay. And so it, it's like saying, this wire keeps away elephants. And you say, what are you talking about? There's no elephants here. And I say to you, see how well it works? Exactly. Uh. So you can certainly say that the guidances have been successful. And I completely concur they have been. What's the number one? If you don't count gadolinium agent discussions, what's the number one adverse event in MRI? It's not things flying into the scanner. What is it? It's burns. Right. By far. Easily, yeah. By far. More than the next two put together. 
So if burns are the number one, that's focal right. power concentration, not diffuse power deposition. So I believe that, and I've, I've, I'm on these regulatory committees now, and we discuss these issues. I've made my points to them, and they're exceptionally recessive, right. receptive, ex exceptionally receptive to the, the concept. I have nothing at all against all the regulations we've had until now with total power deposition, but I think from a these are done by physicists, quite frankly. From a physician's point of view, I need more attention focused on the number one number one wanted bad guy, which is Burns, and it's not total power deposition. So from my point of view, you have just hit the only situation where I would give total power deposition serious concern. If a patient comes in there and is already notably hypothermic, hyperthermic to uh, 38.5 and above, quite frankly, even more than that, in order like to get 40. me to take notice. Oh, if they're in the range of 30, 39.40, of course I would be hesitant about doing MRI in the first place, and of course I would have a lower ambient temperature, and i try to lower the humidity, and I'd also decrease the, I wouldn't cover the patient in blankets or sheets. There's so many things that we would have to do if they had to have an MRI. Are they obese? Are they not obese? If they're obese, they'd also block the airflow, and so the rate of cooling is going to be decreasing, and I can't afford a decreased rate of cooling. So many right. things would go into the decision, but only if they have significant elevation of core temperature to start with. Just hypothetically, what about like a 40 um, degrees Celsius? It's not that I wouldn't scan them. Under anesthesia. It's not that I wouldn't scan them. Anesthesia wouldn't stop you? It would not stop me. Because okay. one thing we do under anesthesia is we monitor everything, including temperature. And okay. it's easy to do that nowadays. Yeah. I would not stop the exam. If I had a strong enough indication, like almost everything else, it's easy to say no. It takes knowledge and understanding and a willingness to apply them to say yes. I can definitely cool that patient down. The question is, how much do I need to? And that's going to be dependent upon what is the indication, what are the patient body habits, what are the studies that I'm doing, what are the SARs I'm willing to do and back down on. Almost across the board, I can massively decrease SAR if I'm willing to scan more slowly. Well, yeah. If I'm willing to increase the exposure to anesthesia time, I can scan them more slowly and not deposit that much power per unit time. I can cool the guy if I needed to, literally cool him. I can put him in a cold bath. Without, not literal bath. I could literally cover him with cooling blankets and have the, nothing going in that room except for the tubing. We could uh -huh. do anything we, we needed to to that patient to keep them, but the I, would consider, yeah. right. I would consider the patient's temperature, core temperature if they're starting out at 40, for sure, okay. for sure. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, I guess also, uh, so this my, my last question as far as like uh, coworkers that wanted me to ask you some, our uh, lead tech who's also an MRSO, she was made aware of a, an incident that happened, I guess, in Colorado just recently. Given the current climate, everybody's wearing these masks. They've got the metal strip in it. Um, we're using these FMDs to clear these patients. Um, but I guess something in Colorado where a, a pediatric patient had a magnet in their nose, but they wanded the patient and it went off. But they, when it went off, they assumed that it was the mask strip. And the, and uh, I guess before the patient was put on the table, they were actually were able to determine that there's a magnet due to radiographs. But have you noticed that this would be challenging for your MRI techs um, with FMDs and screening patients who have these masks on now? There's an article that was written about a pediatric patient who had um, neodymium magnets in their, in their nose, and it was actually the cause of the sinusitis that they were there for. Yeah. And they oh. actually went into an MR scanner, and they have images of that as well. 
Um, I wonder if it's the same one. I would suggest that this is an extremely unlikely, uncommon outcome. And no, I don't think that the metal here is going to interfere with my typical screening typically. What I do suggest that they do is what we tell them to always do. You screen to negative. What that means is you screen and he goes, oh, you have a knife in your pocket. Let's take it out. You don't put him in. You screen again. Right. To make sure that there's not a second knife yeah. in their pocket or whatever, obviously. <laughs> right. So if that happened, please forgive me. I don't know who's involved and I'm not I, trying I to. I don't either. I'm just making an observation. That site obviously did not screen to negative. They screened. They found something. They pulled off the metal strip and put them in without checking. If they would have just checked again to make sure there's nothing else there, they would have seen that it's still powerfully alarming. The other thing is that a magnet will alarm at a much, much greater sensitivity, much sooner in distance than just a metal strip would have, even though it's a very ferromagnetic strip. So even that might have given away that there's something else going on. Right. We, I, I had to take a piece of shrapnel out of a person's eye, did local anesthetic, opened them up and found a piece of shrapnel and pulled it out and then rewanded and it's alarming like crazy. Took out uh, and searched some more, found a second one millimeter piece of shrapnel, took it out, wanded again, no more alarm, took the two out, closed them up, stuck them in the scanner, and no artifact. And I use that case as an example of why rewanding to negative is always important. Okay. Rewind to negative, that's awesome. Yeah. So my last question is more of a fun question It's not his me. last I question. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. We've been working together too long. <laughs> Uh, but I notice it's kind of like for me it's funny I guess but I notice that with your credentials you have all these acronyms behind your name and I'm and I have no idea what they mean <laughs> if I'm being honest like I see F A S C R I see F I S M R M A A N G what are these what do these things mean I go I guess I could have googled it but I want to hear it from you <laughs> um, F A FACR is um, a fellow of the American College of Radiology. Okay. Oh, nice. FISMRM is a fellow of the International Society for Magnetic Resonance in Medicine. Absolutely. MRMD is Magnetic Resonance Medical Director. MRSC is Magnetic Resonance Safety Expert. And AANG is all around nice guy. <laughs> oh, seriously? Nice. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is <laughs> so AANG stands for all around nice guy. It is exactly what it stands for. <laughs> it stands to the truth too. And what I want to do is, <laughs> what I want to do is just put that on my resume moving forward because I think that is awesome. But it, that's really what it stands for: A A N G, all around nice oh, guy. That's awesome. I'll be well, glad in private setting to tell you the history of that. But <laughs> <laughs> I agree. So that's my questions, Reggie. I think you hit them all pretty good. Uh, that that. The uh, fever one was very, that was one of mine. Uh, mine was more towards the, maybe the Graves disease and like, you know, just people who aren't able to regulate their temperature as well. I know there's certain um, diseases and things that, you know, kind of can affect, you know, the regulation, but I think you answered those really well. Well, that's actually one of the reasons for my objection to the way we've approached it until now. We have regulatory agencies that have specifically spoken and addressed patients that have difficulty with thermoregulation, including diabetics. Now, you need to understand what they're doing here. Now they're stepping on toes because now they're suggesting how a physician should practice medicine. And they're telling us that diabetics, which is a huge percentage of the world's population today, need to be treated differently when it comes to scanning because of core temperature elevation. I disagree with that statement. I don't believe it's based in fact, and I think it would be a mistake to do so. So 
I think physicists should stay teaching us the physics, and we should be open to learning. And I also think that the physicians should be teaching about medical care, and that the physicists should be open to learning, and that by working together, we could do a better job of, again, more efficiently and more safely handling our patients. People like to focus on canceling a patient versus accepting a patient. They're both safety issues. And if I accept a patient for MRI that should not have been allowed in there, God forbid, that would be a real potential catastrophe. I agree. But what I think people forget is one day every one of us is going to be a patient. And if we need access to an MR study and it's canned, and the reason for not doing it is not based in science, and now they send me to an interventional, more higher risk procedure and one in a thousand strokes out because of it. There's no way we should be looking at sending, withholding an indicated MR study has its own risks. And from the medical legal point of view, the United States the legal system treats equally malpractice, whether it's based on acts of omission or commission. So whether you did scan when you shouldn't or didn't scan when you should have, if the patient was injured, I'm liable. So it's my opinion that we should be treating things much more seriously and based in science. Just like we treat the physics on science, we should treat the medical care based on science as well. There are a lot of people that have trouble thermoregulating. I've been practicing MRI since 1984. I don't believe I ever, since 1984, I don't believe I have ever decreased, changed the study I was doing because of a concern of total diffuse power deposition, core temperature elevation. I don't believe I did even once in my career. And that doesn't mean I'm right or wrong. It's one approach to medical care, and I don't believe that others have either. So just because exquisitely intelligent, capable physicists bring it up, we have to use common sense. In the areas of medical care, the physician is the expert, and they have to use their own expertise in understanding how to handle those issues. And when it comes to physics, the physicists are the expert, and we have to turn to them and learn from their expertise and apply it towards medical care. Right. I think that's a great way to sum it up. I basically use yeah. science, use critical thinking skills, use the canal method. Um, and thank you, Dr. Canal, for joining us. Um, and thank you for watching. We're Zone 3 Podcast. We're yeah. on the road. We're, <laughs> we're, we're on tour. And uh, so do all the things that YouTube people ask you to do. Subscribe. We're almost at 1,000. We'd love to get there. Um, yeah. So uh, thank you again for watching. Thank you again, Dr. Canal, for joining truly us. Much, yeah, it's been thank great. You so much. We are truly honored, and I can't thank you enough. So thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for watching Zone 3 Podcast. We are out. Sure. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.